And good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. You know with us, it's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning and are currently in chapter 8, although last week we started a little mini-series based on verses 31 and 32, a little mini-series I've entitled True Freedom. John 8, 31 reads, Jesus speaking, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Christian life is all about being set free from the old life of sin and all the stuff that had us bound to serve God in the new life of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week we said, guys, that victory is the birthright of every child of God, not just a little victory, mind you. Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans 8:37 that through our relationship with Christ, listen, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors. Now, no doubt some of you are sitting there thinking, well, if that's true, that victory over sin is the birthright of every child of God, then why am I still so defeated? Well, there are some definite reasons why some Christians remain defeated by certain sins even after they get saved. We'll look at a few of those in a moment. But uh, we want to look also, though, at what we can do to appropriate that victory that Jesus won for us when he died on the cross, three days later rose from the dead. So well, we'll look at that. But before we do, you need to understand something that God told Israel in preparation for him leading them into the promised land. Something very important about victory, he wanted them to know so that they didn't get discouraged. And remember, he was going to lead them into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they were, they were going to fight some pretty formidable foes. Some of them were literal giants. Hold on to that thought. It's going to be important in a moment, all right? But God wanted them to be encouraged, okay, uh, at the um, pace of the victory they would experience. And he went on to tell them in Exodus chapter 23, he said, look, don't get discouraged because victory is going to be a gradual process. So hang in there. It's going to take place over time. You can read Exodus 23, verses 30, 29 and 30. But God basically said, look, I'm going to give you, um, I'm not going to drive the enemy out from before you in one year. But little by little, I'm going to drive them out until you have inherited or gained the whole land. Don't get discouraged, okay? Um, you're going to inherit what I've told you. You're going to have total victory. But it's going to take some time. So hang in there. In other words, guys, whether you're talking about God's people back then or God's people today, victory over the enemies of our, in our lives is often a slow, gradual process. We want immediate victory over everything. Okay. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. It will happen slowly but surely as time goes on and we're faithful and walking with Him every day. Look, God has designed it that way. He's designed it that way. Because it keeps us in a constant state, listen, of dependence upon Him. I mean, think about it. If victory came too easily or too quickly for Israel back then or for Christians today, well, you know, we'd fall into pride, self-reliance, and into an independent attitude that would ultimately be our downfall. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. Spiritual warfare, although not pleasant, is good for us. You say, what are you talking about? Spiritual warfare has been designed by God. He allows it because it does some things in our lives that are very beneficial. Again, it keeps us very close to Him in a place of dependence on our knees. And it reminds us something that Paul would later on articulate in 2 Corinthians 12. Something that's good. That when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. So don't be discouraged at the slow pace of your growth in Christ or the lack of total victory over any enemies that you're facing. We'll talk some more about that in a moment, but uh, take heart. Don't, don't be discouraged because things are moving maybe a little slower than you would like and you're still in bondage to certain things that you want to be free from. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
just hang in there, okay? And maybe God will use something today to help you uh, have that victory. But um, God's promise to you, God's promise to you is that he's going to continue to drive the enemy out of your life little by little until he completes the work he's begun. And that work started when you said, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. That's when the work began. Philippians 1, 1 verse 6 says he's going to finish the work he begins. So again, hang in there. Don't, give, don't get uh, defeated, discouraged, don't give up. And so I've entitled this little series, True Freedom. And it contains just two main points, understanding slavery, and then number two, understanding victory. We looked at the first point last week, understanding slavery. And at that time, we said something that to some would sound controversial, but actually it's very biblical. And that is that most people don't realize that the goal of life isn't to find freedom. It's to find the right master. The goal of life isn't to find freedom. It's to find the right master. Get the CD from last week or go online. You'll know what I was talking about. All right. When it comes to knowing true freedom in life, listen to me. It only comes when you invite Jesus Christ into your heart to take control and you become his slave. It's one of those biblical paradoxes. Okay? You want to be free? Become a slave. You want to be great? Become nobody. You want to rule in the kingdom? Become a nobody now and serve everybody. The Bible's full of these little paradoxes. Now we understand what the Lord is saying. But here's one right here. Okay? You want freedom? You want true freedom? Then be Christ's slave. Now, once we become children of God, saved, redeemed, the Bible says at that moment we have technically been set free from the power of Satan, which means the war is technically over. <laughs> but the battles go on, don't they? The battles go on. Satan is a defeated foe, but he doesn't give up. He keeps trying to fight. These battles take many different forms against many different kinds of enemies, some without, some within. Some of them, like Israel faced in Canaan, are very formidable giants. Of course, by saying this, I'm not talking about literal giants, but allegorical giants. Giant problems, to simplify. Giant problems that stand in our way between us and the will of God for our lives. These would include giants of alcohol, drugs, pornography, homosexuality, others like fear, anxiety, anger, and so many others, all of which we in our own strength are no match for. So what do we do? How can we have victory over our giants in our lives? What do we do? Well, I think it would be helpful to see how one young guy had victory over a giant he came across in his own life. This giant was literal. And this young man was no match for him in his own strength. Of course, the young man's name was David. And the giant was called Goliath. Turn to 1 Samuel 17. Now, guys, there are some powerful principles in this chapter for defeating the giants that we can glean from studying 1 Samuel 17 and the story of David defeating Goliath. As we study that story, true story, historical story, there are a lot of principles that we can glean to help us fight and defeat the giants in our own lives. And didn't Paul the Apostle say in Romans 15, verse 4, that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. So what can we learn about bringing down giants? <laughs> and I'm not talking about the San Francisco kind. What can we learn? If you're a baseball fan, you're thinking, yeah, well, yeah. Are they still in San Francisco? I don't know. I don't follow baseball anymore. Uh, no, I'm talking about the giants in your life. What can we learn from how David brought a giant down? Um, what principles can we glean to apply into our lives and having victory. Now listen, before we look at that, uh, there is a principle that um, this story uh, teaches us about victory over giants that um, it, it, it's not stated directly, but it's, it's there. Some of these truths are uh, come directly out of the text. Some of them are implied, okay? This one is definitely implied. 
All right? I think it happens to be the most important principle of all that we're going to share. This one has to be first. This one has, and we just mentioned it just a, a few minutes ago. And that is that the goal of life and the number one principle for victory is finding the right master. Now, people have all kinds of masters, quote-unquote, that they have submitted control of their lives to. Some are in a bottle. Some are pills. There's a lot of things that people have submitted their lives to that are now controlling them. They, are, they have become their masters. The secret to a victorious life is to find a master who won't wipe you out, but one who will lift you up. In other words, a master who is strong enough to protect you and to fight for you because, listen, you belong to him. David, a shepherd boy, found the right master. And it was that master that gave him victory over the giant he faced. As you read the story, you realize that David at one point faced off with this nine-and-a-half-foot Philistine giant, Goliath. And Goliath was incensed that they would send out a boy to fight him. Because I think for 30 or 40 days, Israel camped on one side of the valley, Philistines on the other, and Goliath would come out taunting the armies of Israel. And he basically said, look, we don't have to get everybody involved in this fight. Look, you send me out your best guy, your champion, and we'll, go to, we'll fight together. And the winner, well, that side is the... You know, that will be the winner of this little conflict. Well, all the guys, all the fighting men of Israel were terrified at this giant, Goliath. And um, David, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but David, when he faced off with this guy, Goliath said, you know, you, you, you send a kid out to fight me? Come here, little boy. I'm going to wipe up the ground with I'm going to cut your head off and feed you and David basically said come on big guy here's what he said verses 45 to 47 you come to me with sword and spear and javelin what is David doing he's acknowledging the the uh, incredible size and power of this adversary a giant that went way beyond David's ability to bring down you come to me with sword, spirit, javelin. Not to mention his incredible size and power. But I come to you in the name of the living God, the Lord of hosts. And it is he, it is he who will deliver you into my hand. For the battle is not mine. The battle belongs to the Lord. Verses 45 to 47. Guys, don't ever forget that point. It is the starting point for all victory in your Christian life. When it comes to victory, it isn't the strength of the enemy you face that should be your focus. Again, all the men of Israel, all the fighting men, including King Saul himself, were fixated on the size and strength of Goliath, so much so that they had so much fear it completely destroyed their faith in God. In other words, they took their eyes off of God and got their eyes on to the problem. Whenever you do that, you're going you're gonna to go down. Peter did it on the Sea of Galilee. Got his eyes off of Jesus as he's walking on water, looked at the waves and everything else. I can't do this. I'm walking on water. It started to sink. Your focus must never be the strength of the enemy you face. Your focus must always be the strength of the God you serve. Don't ever forget that. That's what will determine your victory in your Christian life. It's a very critical point we want to make right up front. The battle isn't yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. So often we try to fight the enemies we face in our own strength. We mean well. We're trying our best. But it just doesn't work. New Year's resolutions don't work. I've tried them. You can't. Use the flesh to defeat the flesh. And guys, no matter what enemy you face in life, remember, 
that is a child of God, well, as Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, no one can be against us and win. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. Then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy as a, and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed, that weighed 15 pounds. Translation, it's a big dude. Big, scary guy. Now look, if you, as you read the story, you, you really understand quickly, David didn't get up this morning and said, oh, today I'm going to fight a giant. That's not what he had in mind. His plan was to go tend his father's sheep, as he had done for many years. But his father, Jesse, said, look, I want you to take some supplies to your brothers and give something to their commanding officer. Maybe the guy will treat them good. But I want you to take some food to your brothers who are in Saul's army and they're on the front lines and so on. So David gathered up the food his dad wanted him to bring to his big brothers, went there. And as he's talking to one of his brothers, here comes Goliath out, as he had done for like 30 or 40 days, I forgot, taunting the armies of Israel. And the God of Israel. And David, could, I mean, it's the first time he's ever heard anybody talk like this. And he was totally incensed and, in, and furious. But I want you to see, we'll talk about that more in just a second. I want you to see that he did not plan on fighting a giant that morning when he got up. Uh, this was a pretty severe challenge that he didn't expect but it tells me that life is full of challenges, isn't it? Challenges that come at us out of nowhere and often when we least expect them. Here we're going about our business, right? Get up, going about your business, whatever your business is. Here we're going about our business when all of a sudden a challenge, often in the form of an adversary of some kind or some kind of a, an enemy or problem, all of a sudden is standing in front of us. to block us from moving forward. Challenges that go way beyond our strength to overcome. And if you're a Christian, these are obstacles that stand between you and God to keep you from being all God wants you to be and from doing all God has called you to do. Remember what it says in verse 4 about Goliath. And a champion, a champion, went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. The word translated champion in the Hebrew literally means the man of the between. Or in other words, the man that stands between. Goliath was literally Satan's champion. The man that stood between God, David and God's will for his life. You see, God had already anointed David the next king a chapter earlier, chapter 16. But now Goliath stands in front of him like some kind of invincible roadblock. And you know what? It was Goliath's plan to kill David. Of course, if you would have killed David, that would have killed God's plan for David's life, which obviously God was never going to let happen. But I'm just telling you, let's think hypothetically. Is Satan's man, Goliath, his purpose was to kill the man of God, David, to keep him from doing what God had called him to do. Goliath didn't care what God called him to do. He just wanted to kill him. Satan wanted to keep David. from. Satan knew what God had done. He was there when, you know, when Samuel went to anoint David the new king. Satan knew David's heart. He could control Saul. He could manipulate this egomaniac. He couldn't do that with David, who was a man after God's heart. So he was terrified of David becoming the next king. Satan was. And so he had his champion, the man who stands between. Satan's got all kinds of champions that stand between you and what God wants for your life. 
course, God is much stronger, but often we run. We never do engage the enemy. It's too terrifying. I'm too scared. I can't do it. I can't be free. It's too much of a crutch. Again, symbolically, Goliath represents any giant obstacle, any problem or enemy that stands in the way like a, again, invincible roadblock to stop us from moving forward into all God has for our lives. And these Goliaths take many different forms. I just mentioned a few. It could be a physical Goliath, some kind of a debilitating disease or handicap that is standing in your way trying to keep you from moving forward and achieving all that God has for your life, you know that he's got something. But whatever it is that you have is holding you back. It's hindering. It's a Goliath. Could be, it could be that the giant standing in your way this morning might be a substance problem, like alcohol, cocaine, opioids addiction is big, heroin, fentanyl, even prescription painkillers can be abused and hurt people. People, you know, battling with cigarettes. I had a woman come up after first serve and say, you know what, you're going to laugh, but my giant was coffee. I was always looking for my next cup of coffee. Now, look, I drink coffee, okay? So, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying, for her, it was a real problem. I, 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 okay, thank you for sharing. I said, some giants are bigger than others. Well, for me, it was a big giant. Okay, praise the Lord. He delivered you. I'm not going to get in a fight with the next coffee drinker. They tend to be a little crabby. So, I, you know... Uh, no, she was very nice, but okay. Look, if you got to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning every day to, to eat chocolate ice cream, that's a problem. That could be a giant. All right, so, you know, we don't want to just limit it to some of the things that we often think of. Um, but, you know, there's other addictions that people have, gambling, pornography, something else. I mean, these giants can sometimes take the form of emotional issues, problems, pain, things like depression. Fear. Again, verse 11 tells us that the men of Israel were so paralyzed with fear because of the size of the enemy that it immobilized them. They, they couldn't move. They couldn't go forward. Some people are just immobilized by fear of some kind. And they can't go forward. With, they're just so, so afraid. For some people, it's loneliness. Others, it's the loss of somebody very dear to them recently. And all these things are like giants that stand in the way. You just can't get past them. You just can't go forward. They have to be brought down before you can get on with your life. I mean, life is full of these giants, guys, and maybe you've tried your best to fight against them, only to be defeated time after time after time. And let's be honest, today, this morning, you're thinking, I have no more fight left. I am, I'm exhausted. I just don't have any energy left to fight. Can I tell you, praise God, can I tell you you're in a better place than you realize? Because again, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when you are weak, then you are strong. When you come to the end of your strength and resources, and often God will let you and me, because if he stepped in when we were really trying hard and we got the victory, you know what? We tend to take credit for it. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I won't share my glory with another. You want to try, you go right ahead. Knock yourself out. But after you're exhausted and broken and you've given up, then you call upon me and I will answer. And I will give you victory and I will get the glory. So, guys, Goliath represents, I don't know, the, the obstacles, the problems, the adversities we face in life. What about David? What does he represent? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. David represents any child of God. Weak, insignificant, and ordinary. Guys, he wasn't the king at this time. He was a shepherd. And in, the, in that culture, shepherds were looked down upon. They were the lowest rung of society. Who did the angels come to first and declare the birth of Christ? Shepherds. That was no mistake. God wanted everyone to know, if I would send my angels to announce the most important birth in the history of mankind to shepherds, you know 
They're important to me, and nobody is beyond my reach. Nobody is beyond my love. I don't care if society casts you out. I don't care if society has written you off. That's fine. But God says, I will never write you off. I will never forsake you. You come to me, and I will work in your life, and I will do what you need done. That's how our God works. When we're at our end, our, our, all strength is gone, and we cry out to God in desperation. His ears are attentive to the cry of the desperate and the contrite, God tells us in his word. And David was a nobody. He was a nobody among nobodies. It was a boy doing a lousy job, watching sheep. Everyone looked down at shepherds, except shepherds. And even his big brothers probably looked down at him. Okay. But David represents any of us. Weak, insignificant, ordinary. And guys, David was no match for Goliath in his own strength, just as we are no match for the giants that we face in our own strength. And yet David did experience a glorious victory over Goliath, didn't he? What was his secret? Well, it was no secret. It was God who gave him victory. Okay, but were there any principles that David clung to, he learned from God, that allowed God to work and give him victory over this giant? Yeah, there were. And that's what I want to focus on, all right? Because, yeah, okay, the victory was God. God gave David victory. The victory belongs to the Lord, no doubt about that. But God in his word has placed principles there. Principles that will, if we will cling to them and apply them, it will help give us victory. God will honor those principles. Now, let me just say this before we actually get into some of those. Because, again, this is a um, kind of a, a it's a principle, uh, but doesn't, feed in directly to the idea of victory, but something that you need for a mental standpoint. I mean, God has given his soldiers, us, the finest armor and weaponry in the universe to accomplish the mission he's called us to do to fight the enemy. You don't have a mind of a soldier, all that means nothing. We outfit our men and women with some of the finest equipment in the world. If they go AWOL, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. If they don't have a heart for the battle, if they don't have the mind of a soldier, it's, it's meaningless. This first principle gets into that very point. We need it if we're going to have the proper mindset for having victory. And, and I'll just share with you, okay? I think it's a foundational principle for the battles we face against any enemy, especially those stronger than we are and uh, enemies that, again, stand in our way between us and God's will for our lives. They hinder us from going forward. Look, challenges, and I'm lumping the giants we face into, the, into that group. Challenges are a way for God to teach you and I to teach you lessons in faith. When you realize that, it helps you to embrace the challenge and not run from it. It helps you to realize that God is doing something good and so on in, 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 in your life. But it's not just that. He wants to use these things in our lives because he wants our lives to be object lessons to the whole world of how great he is. As God works in our lives and people see what he's done in our lives in giving victory and blessing and guiding and so on, it becomes a testimony to the entire world around us, basically. David said that in verse 46. He's talking to Goliath now. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, later on in the verse, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's why God allowed David to go up against Goliath. That's why he gave him such boldness and bravery. Because when he brought down this giant, he wanted the whole world to know that there's a God in Israel, there's a God in heaven who is for us as his people. He fights our battles. 
And he wants to be your God if you let him. Such an important point that God wants to use our lives as object lessons to show the world what he's like. That Look, when trials or calamity comes your way, don't automatically assume God has forsaken you. So many Christians think right away, little, you know, little adversity comes into our life. Oh, woe is me. God's forsaken me. God isn't a loving God. If he was, I wouldn't be going through this. And, you know, it's just really sad. God's trying to toughen them up a little bit and use them for greater things for his glory and their ultimate eternal rewards. And they're complaining because not every day is blue skies and smooth sailing. The Arabs have a proverb. Have a proverb. All, all sunshine makes a desert. We need some storms to grow us and, and, and challenge us and so on. So don't automatically assume because a little adversity comes your way that God has forsaken you or is, in, or is punishing you in some way. That's another one that a lot of Christians fall into. It could very well be that he wants to use you to show himself strong through, to bring glory to his name, and to bring others to his son. So hang in there. Every trial, adversity, and challenge we face as Christians is a way for God to show himself strong on our behalf, that the world might know he is real and he answers prayers. All right, let's look at some of these principles, okay? We'll do, I think, the first three today, and we'll look at the rest next week. Um, the first one is very profound. I, I'm sure you have never heard this before. Write this down. The first principle for having victory in your life, stay close to God. Wow, Pastor. Uh, and this is why God's called me to be a pastor, to share with you some of these deep, profound truths that you would never would have come across yourself. So I think you're welcome. Um, look, this one doesn't come directly out of the story, but if you know David's life, definitely it's implied. Stay close to God. One thing, guys, that, it, that was obvious in David's life, in spite of all of his flaws and failings, and he was not a perfect guy, but he was a man who loved God. God himself said he was a man after my own heart, and David maintained a close walk with the Lord. Now, did he blow it? Yes. If you have a heart for God, you love God, are you going to blow it once in a while? Probably. But David did have a heart for God. He did remain close to God. During that year, he had backslidden with Bathsheba, yeah, but then he got right with God. But remember that David was a shepherd. And shepherds spent a lot of time out in the open fields by themselves. As the summer wore on and they, they would have to move farther and farther away from the village to find grass for the sheep to eat, that meant they were, they were camping out uh, during the summer months. Uh, just them and the sheep. David had a lot of time on his hands, I think especially at night, when the sheep were sleeping and he was laying down on the ground, looking up at the night sky. And don't forget, there was no light pollution in David's day. He saw the stars like we can't even imagine uh, around here at night. But I would imagine that as he was laying there looking up into the night sky, that um, meditating on the Lord, just remembering God's word and drawing close to him, he wrote things that became songs that were sung in the temple eventually. Uh, Psalms. It's all like Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? All of these things came as David looked into the night sky and contemplated the creation and the power of God, the majesty, the beauty, the wisdom of God. This caused him to write some of the most beautiful psalms, songs to God, we, we have as people of God. Of course, spending all that time with the Lord had a very powerful effect on him. You spend time with God. The more you do, the more you have a heart for God, the more you want to spend time with him. As David spent time with the Lord, well, something incredible began to happen that he talked about in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to forever behold the beauty of the Lord. 
As David spent time with God, he found himself wanting to spend more and more time with God. That's how it works. And this was, I think, the main reason why David had such success over his enemies in life. Goliath was just the first one. Well, as we're going to see, not technically. But as he went on to be a king and a warrior, he had victory over all kinds of enemies. But it all started, guys, with his own walk with the Lord, his closeness to God. You must cultivate and maintain a close, consistent walk with God if you're going to have victory. Remember, the best defense against sin is a good, strong offense. In other words, draw close to God. As James said, he will then draw close to you. The second principle for victory, and this does come directly out of the text, draw on past victories, they will bolster your faith for present battles. Draw on past victories, they will bolster your faith for present battles. Look at verse 33. Now, David presents himself to King Saul after Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel and nobody volunteered to go, out, uh, go against this guy. So David goes, and I don't know, what's David, 14 around this time? 14 years old. And he goes to Saul, reports for duty. I'll take him on. I, send me, king, I'll go. And Saul, you know, Verse 33 said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And he's talking about, he still did keep his father's sheep. He's talking about a time in the past when he was keeping his father's sheep that this happened. And um, your servant was keeping his father's sheep one day, is the idea, when a lion, and when a lion or a bear came uh, and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord, listen now, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, go and may God be with you. <laughs> Some of us sending a boy to do a man's job. There weren't any men. Uh, David was a boy, but he was more of a man than any of them. My point is that David was drawing from past victories that God gave him, which bolstered his faith for the present battle. Now, there's in every one of our lives as Christians, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know there is something that's happened in the past where God has come through for you. It may not have been technically a victory, although you could put it that way if you were behind on the rent or the mortgage, the, the, you needed new tires for the car, you're out of work, you didn't know where that money was coming from. And so you just prayed and cried out to God, and through a series of events, he provided everything. That's happened to my wife and I. Numerous times when we were first in ministry, we had no money. And we never said, well, we, we, can we really have some money? And we never went to the church and asked for a raise. or We just went to God. Amazing how he provided. Nobody knew but God. And you come home and you find the proverbial bag of groceries on the doorstep. We found that, you know. Or a check in the mail. We, we had that. I mean, just all kinds of ways God provided. And of course, what that does is, when you're facing a present trial, and you're out of work, and there's no money, and you need have needs, you remember what God did in the past, and you apply it to the present, and you know, God, as you have been faithful in the past, you're going to be faithful to taking care of us today. Because we belong to you. We're your kids. You promised us, you're our father, that you were going to take care of us. In the early days of Calvary Chapel, when the, they had the communes, and of course they were very clean and pure because they were all young Christians now. And I remember these stories coming out of these communes that I would read years later. Uh, two of them, you know, these kids, they had no money. And after they had poured um, sour milk on their cereal another day, they said, you know, we got to pray. And so they prayed that God would somehow provide refrigeration. They knew someone got done praying, knocked on the door, went to the door. 
Guy says, you know what? I was passing by and I saw uh, you've got an old, uh, you've got an old uh, something refrigerator outside not working. I repair those. Uh, how about if I give you a brand new one, uh, gas power? I'll hook it up everything. If I can just take that old one, I need that. Sure, come on in. One time, they had no bread for the next meal. The next day, they just prayed the night before. God provide food for the morning. We have no food. <laughs> True stories. Early in the morning, a guy knocks on the door. He said, I'm a baker. I live in town, and, I, and, and, and I'm a Christian. At 3 o'clock this morning, God woke me up. <laughs> said to start baking bread. I just started baking bread like crazy. He said, I'll take it over to that place over there where all those hippie kids hang out. I mean, just story after story after story. And, of course, all of that you, you draw from whenever you're facing a present crisis or need. God's been faithful in the past. There's no reason he's not going to be faithful today. I'm going to pray and trust him. The psalmist said, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your work. Psalm 143, verse 5. I muse on the work of your hands. Draw on past victories. They will bolster your faith for present battles. One more, we'll close. Acknowledge your giant. Don't deny your giant. Of course, it would have been hard for David to have pretended there wasn't a nine and a half foot giant standing in front of him. But that isn't true for many people who deny the invisible giants in their own lives. Before God will supply the power you need to conquer whatever giant you're facing, you need to acknowledge, listen, your sin and confess it to God. Because folks, let's be honest, a lot of these giants, quote unquote, that we face in our own lives are just flat out sin. Flat out sin. And I'm even talking about worry and anxiety because you're not trusting God. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And the implication is then the way is open again. Then you're reconnected to God and his power is able to flow from him into your life to give you victory. Listen to me. The first work God wants to do in your life is not for you, giving you victory. The first work he wants to do is in you, in you, dealing with the sin in your heart. This is a very important principle. It's not until you get your heart right with him and deal with the underlying sin that is fueling, fueling your bondage, that his power is going to be released into your life to set you free. All sin is a form of idolatry. You realize that? All sin is a form of idolatry, whether it's the worship of self, putting what I want before what God wants, whether it's the wor a worship of substance, taking alcohol, drugs that I can't get by without them, I'm not depending on God's strength, or some other God in your life that you are bowing before because you're just not at a place, what, whatever that place is, where you are really wanting to, are ready to trust God. This thing is going to stand before you and block your way in, from everything God wants to do unless it's dealt with. This giant's got to be brought down. And bottom line, it's idolatry. And the way you handle idolatry is you confess it. You don't say, Lord, I'm this way. It's not my fault. I'm this way because my mom didn't raise me very well. My dad was never around. This or that. People are mean to me. Idolatry is something that you have to confess and acknowledge first and confess. And it takes many different forms. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Guys, it's not until you acknowledge the idolatry in your life and confess it to God that his power is going to be released into your life to set you free. That's a major step in the process of victory. 
God will never give you victory as long as you're blaming somebody else or making excuses. It's just the way it is. And that's why some Christians are locked into a perpetual wilderness wandering. And they're going to die there because they're not taking ownership of their sins. It's a major step in the process of victory, admitting that you are in bondage to something and powerless to have victory over it in your own strength. That's a crucial step for having victory. I think even AA adopted that one, which I'm sure they got from the Bible. Turn back to John 8, 31. I want to bring this to a close. I want to show you that since we're in John 8, you wouldn't know that if you were new with us. We are in John 8, but <laughs> took a little detour. But let's go back there to justify, you know, why we're still in John 8. Um, acknowledging your giant. Acknowledging the problem. Crucial step in victory. Okay? Now, I want you to back up to verse 31. And again, Jesus said... To the Jews who believed in him, these were the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and some others. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here's what they said. They answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will make us free? I don't even know how to process that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even know what to say. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic we are abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone seriously i mean seriously i mean this is a blatant falsehood israel hadn't been had been in bondage you ready to egypt assyria babylon medo-persia greece syria and at that moment rome i mean it's hard for me to believe that these Jewish leaders were denying the political bondage the nation had been in to certain enemies for centuries, it's hard for me to believe that's what they were actually saying, unless they were living in total denial, which is possible. I have to conclude they were talking about spiritual, not political freedom. It's probable that they felt that since they were Abraham's descendants, and God had given the nation his word, I'm thinking from Sinai, Mount Sinai to Moses, the law, that because they had, they were God's people by birth, and they had God's word, that meant they were free from spiritual and moral bondage. It seems that that's how Jesus understood what they were saying. That it wasn't political, it was spiritual. Bondage they believed they were free from. Because he responded in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a, sl and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, we'll have more to say about this, these verses next time and the week after. But for right now, as we bring it to a close, I just want you to see how people, how people can be in great moral and spiritual bondage and be completely blind to it. Even to the point of looking out of their little prison, clutching the bars of their prison, looking out saying, I've never been in bondage to any, I'm free. See, that's the ultimate bondage and deception, isn't it? The kind that makes you, this is what de the devil has done. He's brainwashed the people of the world. He's got them in bondage to their flesh, to the alcohol, the drugs, whatever. But he's convinced them that they're really free. You're the ones in bondage. you got to go to church. you got to read the Bible. You, you can't party. You can't get, you know, uh, cirrhosis of the liver. You can't get gonorrhea. You, you know, you, 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 you can't have any fun like me. Not me, but, you know. I'm done with that so-called fun, quote-unquote. But, you know, yeah, praise the Lord. Again, you want to be free? Give your heart to Christ and be a slave. That's how you become free. That's how he freed me from my little prison looking out at Christians that 
one point looking going, oh, you're such in bondage. You're so slave, slaves to, to, to your Christianity. Looking out my little prison cell thinking I was free. Somebody said the power of self-deception in the unconverted in the unconverted man is infinite. Guys, we're done. God won't even begin to deliver you from your giant, whatever that giant is, while you go on denying you have a problem. And guys, listen, just simply having God's word and even going to church won't automatically set you free from whatever bondage you're in. James said, don't just listen to God's word, again, by going to church. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. In other words, it's not enough to have God. The Jews thought because they had God's word, that's all they needed. It's a lot of folks that believe because they have God's word. I was, You know my testimony. When Cindy and I got married, we had a shower. They gave us a shower, and one of the things that somebody gave us was a Bible. So what did I do with that Bible? I put it right on my coffee table. Because that's what you do. If you're a good person, you have a Bible somewhere. <laughs> and I had that thing on that coffee table for like three years. Never opened it, but it was there. But someday, I said, I'm going to read that, that book. And New Year's resolution, it was right after New Year's, I made it, I'm going to read the Bible this year. Opened it up, started in Genesis 1-1. I got, took me six months to get to Deuteronomy, and almost killed myself. I'm oh like, this is the most boring. This is the most boring. Thing. How can I, yuck, you know? But God was working. I went out to California with my wife to visit my family who had moved out there. They were going to a dynamic, spirit-filled church. I heard the gospel. I got saved. I came back, opened that Bible, and you know what? I didn't understand everything, but I understood a lot. You know why? Because the author who wrote it was now living inside of me. The Holy Spirit, who Jesus said, will lead you into all what? All truth. All truth. I worked the midnight shift. I, most of the time, I was a night watchman. I brought my Bible, and I started reading it voracious. I couldn't get enough of it. And you know what it taught me? It taught me that I was a sinner. But God loved me, and he gave his son to die for me. And he wants to forgive me my sins, but you know what? He wants me to take ownership of those sins. He doesn't want me to blame anybody else or make excuses. He wants me to say, God, I was wrong when I did that. And you were right to bring chastening into my life. I confess that sin, and I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. And God began to deliver me from all kinds of things. And, and he grew me in Christ. I'm not perfect by any means. I'm not all that I want to be. I'm not, definitely not all I once was. Amen? Amen? So next week we'll continue. And if you want to be free, it can start today by just coming up afterwards and letting us pray with you to receive Jesus Christ. You'll be a slave of Christ, but you'll never know such freedom. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth, and the truth makes us free. So we thank you, Lord, for our time. In your word, continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.